Hey, real quick before we jump into the podcast, it's your host, James. Just wanted to offer up some gratitude for you, giving us your ears, giving us your attention. I greatly appreciate it, regardless of where you are at and how you're listening to this. Um, If you enjoyed it or if you have enjoyed an episode before, I would be immensely grateful if you would be willing to share it with a friend that may find it interesting or leave a review on whatever platform you are watching or listening to this on. Uh, I would greatly appreciate it. We don't run any ads, and so that's my only ask. I hope that you enjoy this episode that's coming up with Dr. Jessica Alvarez. It was a heck of an episode. It's a little long, so uh, strap in if you're uh, going to listen all the way through, and uh, I hope you all are blessed and balanced. Peace. Dr. Jessica Alvarez is a registered dietitian with a master's degree in clinical nutrition and a PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, UAB. Her research focuses on the role of nutrition and body composition on metabolism and chronic diseases, including cystic fibrosis and CF-related diabetes, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and chronic kidney disease. In 2017, Dr. Alvarez received the Distinguished Service by a Researcher Award from the Georgia Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for her research accomplishments related to food and nutrition. She is not only a distinguished researcher, published in 158 instances across her career, but a wife and mother of two, as well as an avid CrossFitter that has deadlifted 300 pounds right in front (laughs) of my very own eyes. My friend, Dr. Jessica Alvarez, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, James. Happy to be here. Cool. I, I greatly appreciate you being here. Um, let's uh, let's start off with just kind of, I mean, how'd you get here? How'd you get into uh, into into research? How'd you become an RD? Why are you here? What's the journey been like getting here through 158 publications? Yeah, I mean, if you've got two hours to spare, I'll tell you everything. We've got as much time as you're willing to give us. <laughs> I um, I actually didn't get into. I originally wanted to go to school to become a microbiologist because I watched the movie um, Outbreak, which was very relevant during our recent COVID uh, pandemic. I, that's what I want to do. I want to go chase monkey diseases for the CDC. Um, that didn't happen. I ended up getting like really interested in nutrition as a, um, an undergrad at LSU, uh, changed my major over to nutrition pre-med and then realized I wasn't ready to go to med school or wanted to go to med school and um, learned about what a registered dietitian does. And so I went through that process there. Um, And then I get to, we have to do a dietetic internship and um, that's about a year long process where you rotate through different um, centers and communities, different areas. Uh, My absolute favorite area that I rotated through was a research center. Um, Just loved it. And then a second aspect that I loved was uh, just kind of more pediatric clinical nutrition um, and working with cystic fibrosis, which is one of the diseases that I work with right now. Um, But the research part called me it. I realized that I could have a much um, bigger impact than working one on one with somebody, which is what I kind of had been trained to do. Um, So I stayed and got my Ph.D. in in nutrition um, and I've just I've been studying it since. So you liked the one-on-one or you just realized that there was a bigger need for you long-term? I, yeah, I, um, 
I, I enjoyed the one-on-one. Like I, I have fun um, talking to friends and helping, helping friends out with, with nutrition one-on-one. Uh, as far as a career though went, I, I just, I love research. I love research writing. I loved the idea of being able to do research and have it disseminate to, to the masses as, as opposed to just one-on-one. I also, throughout the entire process realized that, um, there's a lot of nutrition misinformation out there. And if the research isn't done on it, then just more, just more information, it just builds and it just starts to roller coaster. And then you get into crazy stuff. Um, and it's always the, the end for all of these studies is more research is needed. So kind of, that's kind of where, where I am right now is just trying to help fill that void where, where more research is needed. Yeah. So you like it because it's never ending because you can't really hit an outcome. Like once you find one thing, you kind of keep moving and you're like, oh, another thing. Always have a job in research and in nutrition. Um, yeah, we, you know, and, and then it, the science evolves, what we know evolves and um, science is just even nutrition science. Like you just start, you start learning tiny little things and you pick up on other little things and then you like, Oh God, I realized I was wrong. So you pivot and you start learning again and you go, um, so yeah, I think I will have a very long career just trying to chip away at, at, at the, the truth behind nutrition. Yeah. And I mean, would you say that, I mean, one, obviously you picked a good place to have um, job security because it's ever evolving and more people with zero, zero graduate degrees or doctorates are saying all kinds of things all over the internet always. Um, so you're, you're consistently fighting that. But also, I mean, are you just a curious person? Like, do you just love to uncover and pull on threads there? I, um, I love detective work. Uh, I can. Is that so? <laughs> Sorry. No, no apologies. <laughs> How much do you like detective work, Jessica Alvarez? I can find out anything. Mm. Um, yeah. My, one of my favorite things in, just about like when I start a new project or I'm, I'm thinking about hypotheses is um, going through the literature and doing some detective work and putting together, it's like pieces of a puzzle. And so I, which is one of my favorite things to do. Um, is you putting, build puzzles outside of your work too? I, I, if I have time, I can sit there for hours and do a puzzle. Um, I might never finish it. And usually I'm missing three pieces, which is like, uh, well, isn't the, that a metaphor for your life? No, this is story. never done with the research and nutrition either. It never ends. But yeah, I, I do have a very curious mind. Um, I don't vocalize it a lot of times. It's always in, in my head, but I'm always thinking about, about the next question and, and how and who and what. Um, and so it's, it's just fun to do that kind of detective work. Yeah. At what point uh, in your time working kind of one-on-one, you said you were in a, you were doing rotations when you figured out that you wanted to do research full-time? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the dietetic internship, um, it's a graduate program and we spend, I don't know, sometimes one week in a community center or I'll spend three weeks in a pediatric um, clinical center, just shadowing other dietitians. Um, and so we, I, I, throughout that entire year, I, I did things such as like working in a, uh, that at, uh, LSU's food kitchen, um, or, uh, actually it was UAB, um, 
so I, I had like the hairnet and everything working in the kitchen for a week and doing food safety. Um, or there was a week that I spent in, um, a clinical hospital doing like looking at critical care patients and helping to figure out how much tube feedings or what they needed for tube feedings. Um, so it's just sort of to get an idea, um, to help us choose what we want to do with the rest of our careers, but also to, to give us like this base knowledge of what the like, minimum a registered dietitian should, should know or pick up on. Okay. And I mean, what does that, uh, what does that standard look like for a registered dietitian? Like, can you walk us through a little bit? Cause I know people are like, Hey, I'm a certified nutritionist. Hey, I'm a licensed dietitian. Hey, I'm a registered dietitian. Hey, I'm an MD. Um, but I don't know anything about nutrition. Hey, I'm a pharmacist. Like there's some crossover. Can you, can you kind of break down what those different areas look like really just from your perspective as a registered dietitian, even though you're not working one-on-one with clients? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, to become, so I do for as registered dietitian, we, we do this one year internship and then we take a test. Um, uh, and it's, I I guess similar, I mean, not quite as extensive as say an MCAT, but there is a general knowledge test that you have to pass to become a registered dietitian. And then we have to continue, um, learning. So we, every five years we have to get 75 CEU credits or like hours, um, of, extra knowledge under our belts. Um, and so that's a continuous process. We keep learning, um, versus some, so that's, and sometimes I think even now to become a registered dietitian, you have to, or they're at least moving the program. If it hasn't happened already, you have to have a master's degree or you combine that with a master's degree. So they're sort of trying to elevate the, um, the education requirements to become a registered dietitian because there are other folks out there who might take a three week course and then call themselves a certified nutritionist and, and that's it. Um, so there's just a lot, a lot of differences there. And then you can become a physician. You can be a physician and go through the, your entirety of medical school and never take one nutrition class. So there are physicians out there that don't, they don't know a lot about nutrition. Um, I think they're trying to build it more into medical schools. I'm at, I'm at Emory. Um, I'm in the school of medicine. I don't do any teaching for, for the med students or anything, but I, I know that they're, they try to incorporate more nutrition in there. Um, and then there are some specific programs for physicians that they can take, but I mean, that's sort of a, we're Emory is a teaching hospital. So if you think about your pediatric, your 70 year old pediatric physician out in rural Georgia who went to training, I don't know how many years ago mm-hmm. he probably didn't, or she, um, didn't get any nutrition education in that, in that area. Yeah. That went through it when they were like in their twenties and they're in their seventies right now, right. probably didn't touch anything. Right. Right. And you said 75 CEUs every five years. Yeah. So that's, that's About 15 the, every year. Is that yeah, kind of that's most people bring life to, to get your, your, to keep my credentials as a registered dietitian. And then you, you mentioned licensing. And so within each state, each state has its own licensing requirements. And so if, if I were to um, do medical nutrition therapy and work one-on-one work in the hospital, treating patients with nutrition, then I would have to get my license. I don't have that because I, I just stick to research. So. Okay. So licensure, is that in a hospital setting and then also with clients as a registered dietitian? Is that like the legality of that? Yeah. I mean, is yeah. That- and it's, 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 um, it's state specific. So, um, you get, you can get, if I'm, if I were to move to Louisiana, I'd probably, I'd have to get a license in, in Louisiana, similar to, I guess, attorneys and physicians. You just got to be registered with them. That's the LD side or that's the RD side. That's the LD side, the license. Okay. So your RD, that's 
that's national, that's international. Like you could technically be in studies that were. Yeah. My RD, my RD will stay with me as long as I continue to pay my dues and do my 75 CEU credits. Which is pay them money. Hard. You said yeah. pay them money. Yeah, to stay money to, too. Okay. Oh, like everything. <laughs> we have to support the, uh, the entity. Um, but yeah, so I, in the 75 CEUs every five years, it's not for me being in research, it's not hard because I have, I can watch or even do seminars and get credits for, for that aspect or write grants or write papers. Um, so that all counts towards my, my continuing education. So you what teaching, I do, like you teaching seminars can get you that, or are you like attending seminars? Both, oh, both cool. let me, um, get credit for it because, well, when I'm giving seminars, chances are I've read a few papers. And so I count those papers towards what, towards my hours. Um, and same with attending seminars. That's an hour right there. Uh, that I can Jess, you, said, you said you read and write. I love reading and writing. I, I only know you did deadlift. I don't know what you're talking. Read and writing. <laughs> read you don't and do any of that. I only deadlift at five forty-five in the morning. <laughs> you don't know what I do um, in the other hours. Yeah. No. Um. I mean, it seems like you found you found your pocket. Do you love your research? I I, I do. I absolutely love. Um. I'm. My research is pretty. It's pretty niche. Um, and so what's the niche break, break it down for those that don't know. Yeah. So I do, um, I do nutrition and body composition in, in chronic diseases. And when I say chronic diseases, I don't even mean like, uh, diabetes. I like very specific clinical diseases like cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic, um, a genetic disease. I also do some work in, uh, research in people with HIV. It's a really, really specific, um, research that some of it can, some of what I learn in these specific diseases can be applied to the general population. Um, but my niche is more applying it to these very specific diseases. Um, and I, and I, and I do love it. I think it's, uh, nutrition. I'm very biased. I'm a dietitian. Um, I think nutrition is one of the most important things for, for disease maintenance. So, um, it's fun. Yeah. If you had to go back, rewind, um, before you got into the pocket, I don't know how long you've been doing CF stuff. I don't know how long you've been doing any kind of HIV or, or chronic diseases. Um, but if you had to rewind and you started back before you jumped into this kind of specialty, this specialty pocket, would you do it again or would you pick something else? I think, I, I think I would do it again. I, um, it's as a scientist, it's pretty hard to break into, um, some of the more general things like we, there are specialists in obesity and specialists in diabetes and heart disease. Um, but it's hard to break into that world in, in the, the science world to, for me to make a name for myself. Um, it's just very packed and dense field, um, with people doing research. So for me to find this niche in these very specific diseases that I think need more help in nutrition, um, has just been it's worked wonders for, for my career. Um, and I can, like I said, I can apply what I learn in one aspect to do, to do other, other fields. If, if I wanted to other diseases, I guess. Why does, why does HIV research and, and CF research need more application of nutrition? Um, I guess not need more application, but they, uh, Historically, for both of both of these diseases, um, historically there's a there was a high rate of malnutrition, um, and so so that's one. So malnutrition, protein loss, um, that all promotes 
morbidity, mortality in, in these diseases. So it's super critical. I just like, it's critical for aging and, and other diseases, but, um, and there are, there are other very specific diseases where this could apply. These are just the ones that I do research in. Um, but now with, with these populations though, um, there are lots of new medications and new interventions are out where we're looking at um, sort of not even malnutrition anymore, but now obesity and overweight and um, just these diseases that are, we thought maybe we would never see, especially for cystic fibrosis um, are starting to emerge as people are, they're living longer with their chronic disease. And so we see more disease um, that could be related to nutrition or um, could be related to other things. Uh, but I'm, I'm rambling at this point now. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. I, I appreciate you going on that path. Uh, follow up question on that. I mean, with, with the life expectancy going up, even with obesity rates rising, obviously we're staying here longer. People are making decisions that are compounding over a longer time horizon. I mean, do you think that by very nature of, of more people being alive longer, that you're able to actually go deeper in your research because you have more of a, uh, more data points to look at over like a decade, two decades, three decades, four decades, as opposed to like, oh shit, people were, people were dying at 40. Yeah. And I, I think that's, I, that's an aspect of research that I don't do is this epidemiolo epidemiologic longitudinal mm -hmm. type research. Um, I haven't been in my career long enough to be able to follow people for, for a hundred years. Um, but that's, we definitely learn a lot more about what contributes to overall survival when, when we're able to study these, these groups super long-term versus a, a population that dies at the age of 40. Um, so like with, with my cystic fibrosis community or population that I, that I study, um, I, I tend to focus on the adults because I think it's super important to, to acknowledge that these are people that are living a lot longer. Um, we're seeing diseases that we didn't expect to see, diseases of aging, because I mean, we can be super healthy and, and still get disease, right? Like it's, um, it, you know, there's just a lot that goes into what happens when you age. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's it, we definitely learn a lot. We're learning a lot more and it's kind of, with some of the diseases that I'm studying, it, it's sort of new territory because we were so used to some populations dying early that we don't know what's happening um, as they start to become grandparents and living longer. Would you say that the uh, that there's a net benefit though for both the HIV population and the CF population with the research that you're a part of and your colleagues are a part of? A net benefit in in um, carryover to both understanding of, of disease, but then also to people that are living with it, people that you're studying, um, like are there key takeaways that they're coming out on the other side or y'all are coming out on the other side with that can be applied to people that are going to be moving through that same time at like the 20 year mark or 15 year mark or what have you? Yeah. I mean, if we, if we learn, you know, well, this is what's going to happen as you age. So we can start applying as you're, when, when people are younger to start making, um, maybe better decisions or start, you know, start realize acknowledging that in the future, you, you are going to be at higher risk for diabetes. So talking to people early, um, to help, help start maintaining their, their health would be that, I mean, that's ideal. That's preventative medicine is, is key. It's huge. And nutrition is a huge part of that big part. Yeah. 
Let's open up the obesity uh, obesity door um, because I feel as though it's it's probably it's probably for most people not unknown that obesity is going up, right? But can you give us a a sliver, maybe a look, a peek in the window of how much obesity actually is going up? Because I think for the majority of people that don't live, eat, sleep, breathe, and and run nutrition, fitness, and and this world might not have an idea of how aggressive it's becoming. Yeah. So, um, I think the last numbers that I saw for overweight and obesity were almost two thirds of our population, um, are overweight or obese. Um, and so, so yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's own pandemic that, um, I think there are multiple causes though. And, and, you know, there are a lot of very smart people trying to figure out what the causes of obesity are and how we can stop it and how we can treat it. Um, but there's so many, it's so multifactorial, like everything, genetics, what we eat, what we do, how we sleep, um, what environmental toxins we've been exposed to throughout our entire lives, what our parents ate, what our grandparents ate. Um, there's just so many aspects that, that are, we think are contributing to this, this obesity pandemic um, that, it, that it's, it's really hard to study and it's, it's really hard to, to control. Um, which is why there are so many people working on it. Yeah. But I mean, of that, of, of just the, the piece of the pie that, that you're aware of, or the piece of the pie that, that you play a role in, like what's actually within our control, like today here, right now, we can't control our parents, can't necessarily control our kids that come after us. Right. But what, what can we control? Yeah. I mean, we control, we, we can control how much we move and how much we put in our mouths, right? Um, that's at the individual level. If it gets bad enough, we can go to the doctor and get treated for it. Like that's the ultimate, um, that's what you, I mean, you can prevent it maybe. Um, but th those are the things we seek help uh, or want for one, and then be careful about what you eat and how much you move. Like those are, those, like, that's like absolute basics, right? Um, so yeah, I, I, what is, what is treatment? And I, I hate, I don't mean to interrupt you, but what does treatment look like for obesity? Like, yeah, I mean, doesn't it require responsibility? Doesn't it require you to change your action? Doesn't it require you to psychologically be in a place where you're ready for that? Like we can't yeah. force that upon people, right? Like medicine's not going to fix it by itself or am I completely off? Well, I mean, so uh, my stance is that obesity is a disease and you're going to treat a disease, however it takes to be treated, whether that's bariatric surgery. And I'm talking like obesity to the point where we're like, not talking about, you got a little, a little bit of fat and you want I'm to not talking until... <laughs> about a muffin yeah. top. Yeah, yeah. no, okay. I'm talking about obesity as a disease. And, um, so there, and there's treatment for it. There, there are medications that you can take right now. There's, there's a new medication that that recently was released that seems to be working beautifully. I can't remember the name of it. Um, bariatric surgery is another option. So that there, so that's, you know, seeing a physician uh, and getting treated is, is probably, um, it's really important if, if you're dealing with extreme obesity or someone is dealing with obesity, because it's a disease and we're not, you know, if somebody has diabetes, we're not just gonna let them sit there and wait and see what happens. Like you get treated with insulin or, you know, some form, sometimes nutrition, intensive nutrition therapy. Um, but yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of my stance on, on where, where, where we are with obesity. Now the muffin top, the, you know, that kind that's, I don't consider that obesity. <laughs> um, I think another issue with, I guess, obesity is how we define it. And so 
there are ways, um, you know, the, the current cut points, what BMI of 30 or above is defined as obesity. Well, that's kind of, I don't know. I think that's kind of BS and, and you probably have a BMI above 30, maybe. I have an overweight BMI. <laughs> okay, um, okay. Like I literally, um, I have sometimes depending on how much I weigh, right? Like right now I'm six, six, one, I'm two Oh three today. And I've never gotten, I've never gotten my BMI and said that I was within the normal ranges of weight. It's always said overweight or obese every single time. Right. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of my research is more clinical populations, but it applies to the general, general population is, is looking not at BMI is just trying to um, show that there are other measures beyond BMI, such as looking at how much lean mass muscle bone you have, how much fat you actually have, like adipose tissue. Um, and you, and looking at those numbers instead of just sticking with BMI of 30 or even 26, I think my BMI is overweight too, if I'm being honest. Yeah. I mean, is that just because you, we both have more muscle mass, uh, yeah. as opposed to the general population that those are based off of. I mean, is that kind of what that means? I can, can you break that down into layman's terms for people that are like, you know, doc, when I go to my, I go to my physical, uh, I'm technically overweight for my height and weight, you know, and my age. Okay. But what does that mean? Does that matter? Yeah, it, it might not. They, unless that person, when, when that person goes through, say, a DEXA machine or gets some sort of body composition analysis, that's when we know, well, you just have a lot more muscle. It's fine. Um, some people, you know, it's obvious that some people have more muscle than, than, than others. Um, so I, 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 I'm never concerned if, if someone tells me that like their doctor told them they had a BMI of 26 or I'd I can probably look at you and say, well, you've got more muscle than, um, than anything. And, and the old, the old saying holds true that muscle weighs more than fat. Um, we've just, it's, it's more dense. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm fine. If people are to tell me that they have a BMI, when you tell me you have a BMI of 26, I probably roll my eyes and say, you, it's muscle. Don't worry about it. Right. Calm down, Cindy, calm down. Jane. Oh, you're calm all tadpole. You're fine. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it, it, do you think that that statement though, is taken out of context muscle weighs more than fat? Cause technically it's a difference in density, right? Like if you really want to not be crude about the, the statement, but like, do you think that that's used as, as, as a get out of jail free card by some people that are probably outside normal ranges of what they should be if they want to be healthy and live a long life? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's more individual and, and teaching, teaching folks that the, the difference between muscle and fat, and you, you really can't tell, like, unless you do the body composition analysis, um, which I acknowledge is not something that everybody can do unless you join my research studies, you might be able to, um, <laughs> because I actually do body composition analysis, but, um, and it costs money, but there, there are ways to, to tell, um, the pinch test. Can you do any of that kind of stuff? Like, and you can do, you can do the people in body. Um, uh, is a good one. A, a bioimpedance analysis. Um, that's actually one, one that's good. Bod pod. If you have access to one of those, um, but even just, I'm trying to think. So a lot of times we will do like cir circumference. You can do this is more clinical, more research based. But we hit can it, hit it. Come on. <laughs> We Not can, everyone has a DEXA, like, DEXA machine. Oh, yeah, DEXA for sure. That's my <laughs> go-to clinical gold standard. Yeah. Um, if you join a research study, then 
<laughs> you might be able to. Uh, Skinfold, well, let's, waste. Let's pause right there. You said you said research study. First of all, like I think that that's a like. Let's go back to um, how we can find those. Uh, we can go through those tests in just a second. But like, if someone wanted to get involved with research with you, they're in Atlanta. They wanted to do that. How do they do that? Just real quick. Oh, they could shoot me an email and uh, I will lead you to the right resources for joining my research study if I can use you. Okay. I'm always okay. looking for healthy controls for my um, diseased populations okay. uh, as comparators. Cool. So well, so if anyone's listening to that, I will link her email in the show notes on YouTube and on every streaming site so that if you want to get involved, she has a slew of individuals that she can use for, for healthy control. So Back to how people that don't have access to a DEXA though, right? So they can do skinfold, right? We can go bod pod, we can go in body. What else can we do? Um, I, you can buy scales that are cheap, um, that they're more bioimpedance analysis, same technology as the in body, um, just more on a cheap, on a cheaper level that could work. Um, Usually these, these cheap devices could be functional as far as like tracking your long-term changes. So if you, you know, if it tells you, you have 30% body fat today and you start working and it goes down to 25%, that's probably real where you started. You might not actually have started at 30% body fat. The number might not be exact. Um, but being able to monitor your trend over time, that's, what's really important. Is, is that, that the, trend that you're seeing? Is that the same kind of thing with a scale? Cause like you could hop on four scales next to each other and they say that you're a different weight technically based on calibration. But if you use the same scale and you're hopping on it once a week and it's not changing scale and it's not changing time during the day and you're not doing craziness, like if that's going down, it's probably a good indication that it's actually going down or if it's going up, same thing. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? Yeah, like that's follow exactly. the trend, follow the forget trend. about the actual, the point. <laughs> Yes. Follow the trend, use the same device. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's a great, it's a great indicator of what, where you're moving specifically. Um, you know, if, and, and I would also say things like if it's not moving as fast as you want to, it's, and you're, you know, moving, exercising, um, then maybe you are gaining muscle, which is great and not losing as weight, weight as fast. But, uh, I, I would tell people to keep, with it because changes change for like what, what you want to be this perfect specimen and everything. Um, that's a really long and slow, slow process. It's not going to be something that's going to happen in five days, five weeks, five months. It's something that you'll start seeing over years. Um, until one day you realize like, wow, I look good. Or someone says it. No, I'm not talking about myself. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about other people. I look at me in the mirror. I look great. <laughs> I love myself. Um, so you mean to tell me I can't get slim thick in five weeks? What's wrong with you, Jess? Don't tell I me. Mean, I mean, I, I think you can go through extreme processes and cut your calories mm. and exercise really hard for the next five weeks. And sure, um, I, I think you can do it. I uh, question whether the extremeness is sustainable past five weeks. And I just don't think that, um, that level of intensity is, is, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's sustainable bottom line. 
Yeah. Well, outside of sustainability, I mean, would you also say that it's maybe not something that most people have any business doing unless they have a specific reason to be that size or that weight or what have you, that's ridiculously important to them and not to someone else, but to them, like, there's really no reason to try to rush. Like we're trying to do things to get ourselves to a place where we can be sustainable now. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, to me, and this is just personal opinion. Um, the, the, the biggest changes happen like are small changes that occur over a long, long period of time. If you are trying to get ready for a wedding and want to drop 10 pounds to fit in your wedding dress. I mean, yeah, there are things that you can do. I'm sure cut your calories, but that's, you'll see the best results if you had started three years ago versus like, Oh shoot, my wedding's in four weeks. Let's, let's do this. Um, it's doable. It's just once, once you start getting back to your normal routine, it's just going to go back to, to, to how you were at baseline. Yeah. So are you, are you more in favor of people just taking smaller daily deposits, smaller changes over a longer time horizon, as opposed to putting pressure on themselves to get somewhere quick? Yeah. I mean, I think the small changes that you do, like those start to build up. So you do small changes, you cut out Ben and Jerry's every night. That was my issue. Um, or, you know, start cutting, making these small changes and things start the good changes that you make or the good replacements of food that you make. Um, those start building up and eventually, uh, over years, maybe, maybe months, you, you are at this like really good place that you start to see, um, and notice that like, maybe you've, you've started building muscle. Um, so I, I'm a huge fan of making the small changes over a long time, uh, compared to just hardcore crashing, going balls to the wall to try to lose weight really fast. Cause I just don't see any of that being sustained, like any of the balls to the wall, um, methods to be sustainable. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, can you give me clarity on what you mean by good changes? Like what is good and bad in nutrition? Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of the times when when you talk to people about nutrition or you, even you probably talk to clients who are like, oh my God, I need to cut out blah for my diet. I need to cut out blah for my diet. Um, something that I've started to try to tell people um, and I think you've noticed is like, maybe don't cut out, but how about you add, add good stuff to your diet? Like, why don't you add some greens to, to, to that plate? Or, um, <laughs> so I just, to me, it's like queen of add, the vegetables I'm gonna add something healthy to, to this and it's going to make it delicious and a pretty plate, um, versus focusing on like, Oh my God, I have to cut sugar. And, and, and yes, probably you do have to cut sugar. A lot of people, that's that's the vice for a lot of people. Um, added sugar, I should say. Um, but where are they getting that? The sugar? Where are they getting the added sugar from? Like, is it specific yeah. types of, like, is it desserts? Is it alcohol? Is it, because uh, it's surely not fruit oh. if you're talking about added sugar, right? Right. It's all of the above. I think a lot of our, a lot of the foods and just that we have access to are very highly processed um, nutrient poor, high added sugar, high saturated fat. So, and, and all of these things, um, they're there because they taste good, right? Like, mm -hmm. and they're convenient to, to eat. And so we want to keep buying them. Um, I think that's the, the convenience food and the highly processed food is where, where we're getting a lot of our added sugars. Um, versus if you were, I mean, I don't, if, if I were to try to make my own ice cream, I'd probably eat a lot less of it than, and like, than, going to the convenience store, which I do to buy a thing of Ben and Jerry's 
every yeah, or bluebell cookie two step or uh, i mean and, and you know what there's nothing wrong with that either it's just when when it starts to become a trend and it's every night um that that you can take can take a step back and and start thinking of other ways other foods that you might be able to eat in those situations yeah for somebody that's that's listening to this it is like hey well you know you have like the most education of anyone that i've ever heard talk about nutrition like surely you eat perfectly like is that is that the case for you or do you also binge do you also you're also human you know i don't see a halo above your head but i'm i'm, I'm truly like let's make this a little bit more approachable like can you talk about where you step off of what is nutrient dense what is more nutrient poor like you're a human like the rest of us right yeah, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I love a tub of Ben and Jerry's and I will eat the entire tub if I go to the convenience store to pick it up. Um, and I, I enjoy alcohol too. I will drink, you know, I'll drink beers and mimosas on the weekend. Um, like you said, I I'm human. I also know so, but there it's not, it's few, not few and far between. Um, it's just not every day. And so most days of the week, I try to make good choices. Uh, most of the days of the week, if I falter on the weekend, I'm okay with that because most days of these, most days of the week, I've made these, these, these better choices. Um, but yeah. And that kind of helped makes me feel comfortable when I see an Oreo or something and I'm like, that looks good. I really want the Oreo, uh, which is vegan, by the way. Um, vegan doesn't make it good. Don't play with me. <laughs> true uh but yeah i i don't feel bad about you know eating an orphan if i were to scarf down the entire bag of oreos i might feel bad like the whole I, tray I would, like the four sections I, of the whole thing i promise you i would feel sick if i did that most people would um but just enjoying an oreo is it's not it's not going to kill me i don't enjoy an oreo every day um i i know my weakness um, and again, like, because something works for me, doesn't work for the rest of the population. Um, but my weakness is, is sweets and like chocolate. Uh, and so if I were to, yeah. And it's something that I could very easily get Dark chocolate. Ooh. Milk chocolate is really good too, though. Um, dead to me. <laughs> if it's I was been not- a fun podcast. I, I really appreciate it's you being five, here. So- milk chocolate. You've now minus 300. The dark chocolate has more flavonoids, right? Um, and there you go. I, hype it I, up, hype it up. Come on, give us some more. Yeah, what else dark, dark chocolate dark got that milk doesn't have? Um, I just know, I know my weaknesses. And mm-hmm. so that is something I try to control and, and have like, I noticed changes when I finally started saying no to my daily Ben and Jerry's. Um, and it got easier. It gets easier to say mm-hmm. no to these, like the foods that you know are comfort foods, to, like, not so much comfort foods, but these highly processed foods that are just sort of, um, weighing you down, I guess. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, so, I mean, would you say everything in moderation, including moderation itself, would that be a fair assumption with nutrition? Yeah. Everything in moderation. Tell me more about this moderation itself including moderation itself. Like if you want to have a tub of Ben and Jerry's and it's, it's a day that you're like, that looks really good. And I have been doing my best to prioritize nutrient dense foods, but I want that tub eat the damn tub. Right. Does that sound advice? Like don't eat the damn tub every single day. Right. Let's not get 1400 calories of ice cream every single day. That's probably not going to wind you up where you want to be. Um, but like, is that, is that okay? Like, do people have permission to do that kind of thing? 
Because I know people probably look to you as as someone that has so much understanding of nutrition and want you to co-sign things, right? Want you to co-sign this. Want you to, hey, is this okay? Is that okay? Like, does anyone need permission to do that? Or is it more so you just need to understand that like it's your life and, um, you know, there's things that are better or worse for your goals and everything else is gravy. Yeah, I agree with every single thing you've just said. Um, everything in moderation, including moderation itself. I like it. Um, I, every- I didn't come up with it. Oh, all right. Well, I stole you- it from somewhere. I, don't, I couldn't tell you where. I have no idea, but I've heard it before and I like it. I do like it. I think I, bottom lines, it, 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 it's sort of, you know, what, what you're doing in the long term. Like there are things that you might do daily. Maybe you eat an Oreo today, but tomorrow you don't. And so when the, the good things, the good choices that you're making out, start outweighing the bad choices, which could happen sometimes it's fine. Um, it's just what happens over a period of time versus thinking about like, Oh crap, I, ate my bed. I, I, I'm we're really promoting Ben and Jerry's here. Um, let's change it to, for the podcast. Let's change it to something else. I ate my friend's um, delicious apple chocolate pie. chip cookies or okay, yeah, fine. whatever. Dark chocolate chip cookies, whatever. <laughs> um, you just got me really excited about chocolate chip cookies. Uh, ma- making those, those, the right choices over time or the, just the, the better choices. I'm not going to say the right choices. Um, just the, the better choices over time is what, I think that's what matters most for your long-term health versus like what happens in one day. Cause anything can happen in a day. We're, we're all busy. Um, we're all stressed. It's just what happens over time. Yeah. Have, have you looked at any, have you been a part of any studies that have looked at like the, um, the bodily response when your stress levels are higher and how that plays over to the psychology of what you're eating? Like, do you have any kind of, I mean, that might be like hyper specific and you're like, no, James, never done that. Yeah, no, no. So I, <laughs> I have not looked into the psycho, like anything related to the brain. I think the brain is an absolutely fascinating organ and way too complex for me to, to have, I would have needed another PhD, um, to be able to fully understand what happens with, um, with stress and appetite control and, and all of the, the intricacies of, of what happens, even like just the, the whole fruit reward aspect of it. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. Not in my realm of expertise. Got it. Got I'll be, it. I will always be honest and tell people that what I know and what I don't know. And most, most things I don't know anyway. Um, I know science, there's no hard concretes in science. Um, and if anyone tells you otherwise, they probably don't really know. And they're lying to you. <laughs> and scientists is likely to tell you, I don't know. We need more research. Or here's what we found in this small sample size, and this could be extrapolated out, or it could be fooey when you when you get a larger population, and we don't know, so we need to do more. That 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 is very common that, that happened, or you know, well, I did one study and found this, and then I did this study and found the exact opposite. Now I have to do another study to figure out what went wrong or who's yeah. actually right. Okay. Speaking of studies, uh, let's transition to your most recent publication. Okay, that's uh, talking about the difference, you know, the the sex differences. In the relationships between body composition, uh, reading straight from your title. I don't want to miss. You've got a literally, like I said, when we started this 158 publications on your faculty page. So I don't want to mispronounce the wrong one, but that most recent that I think that was what May something that came out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Of this year. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and go as deep as uh, whatever, like oh, any of that kind of stuff. It was just pretty cool when you brought it up in the gym. And I think that people here could 
Yeah. So my the the to me the moral of the story was that it goes along with the thick thighs saves lives in women. Um, so what we uh, this is a study that we ran a few years ago, um, and we had just healthy adults or just a general like thirty people. It's it's a very small study, um, and we put them through an MRI machine um, to look at sort of their mitochondrial function in the muscle. Um, and the way we did that was to put them in the MRI, measure um, phosphocreatine, which is an uh, important energy component, um, measure that at baseline, have them do a series of leg exercises to like really deplete the phosphocreatine levels. Um, and then the whole time they're in the MRI machine. And then we can watch how fast those phosphocreatine levels are repleted. Um, and so part of that is sort of a measure of mitochondrial function. So you, the, the faster, um, the less it takes for those phosphocreatine molecules to, to be replenished, um, the better that's an indicator of mitochondrial function, mitochondrial health. Um, and then we also, uh, with that, we also measure, we were in the MRI, we were able to measure percent like visceral fat and leg fat and, and body fat with DEXA. We use DEXA because we put these folks through a series of MRI scans, DEXA machines. Um, we drew blood and we measured mitochondrial function in, in the cells in their blood. Um, and for that, we just, we drew blood, we isolated like monocytes. So these white blood cells and put them in a special little, I call it my, a little seahorse machine to measure oxygen, um, oxygen consumption of the cells. And that is also sort of a measure of mitochondrial function. So all of these things we did, um, and we did this cross-sectional study, sample size of 30, and looked at basically the relationship between um, where your fat is located. So if it's in the visceral fat or the thighs um, and mitochondrial function. And what we found was that in women, the women who had, this is where my thick thighs saves lives comment comes from, women who had more subcutaneous fat on their legs and butt was associated with better mitochondrial function. Um, so more fat on the thighs and, and legs was, was a good thing. Um, for men, on the other hand, if you had more fat in the, in the visceral area and the abdominal area, that was associated with worse mitochondrial function. So more belly fat in men, worse mitochondrial function. And I, I guess I should like mitochondrial function is sort of this vague term, but it, it's associated based your, you know, mitochondrial powerhouse of, of all your cells. Um, and when we look at it, it's, it's sort of, we're kind of using it as a, a biomarker for overall health. Um, so yeah, it, it was, it was, it was a really fun study to do because we got to use a lot of really cool, expensive equipment. Uh, but I, I think the more the the moral of the story was for women at least not to be so scared of um, having a thick booty, I guess, um, and 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 for men that you know the the, the beer, beer bellies are probably less um, less ideal. So the slim thick women won and the dad bods lost. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. I love it. Yes. I need okay. you to be my study promoter for when, well, when I like will happily make videos to bring layman's terms to the study findings of any of this stuff content wise. Um, points of clarification though, real quick. Can you break down the difference between subcutaneous fat and visceral fat for everyone that has no idea what that even means? 
Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I'll start with visceral fat. Visceral fat is the fat that surrounds our organs. And so a lot of times that is what's in our abdomen area. Um, so it surrounds your liver. Um, and then there's also a little uh, visceral fat is what surrounds like the liver area, the pancreas liver. Um, but then there's also what we call ectopic fats that are kind of related to visceral fat that might surround the heart. Um, those are a bad part. That's, that's like the fat that we don't want because it is so close to the organs. Um, we don't need and visceral fat. Yes. Ectopic and visceral fat. Um, subcutaneous fat is the fat that is sort of outside of the, of your, your muscle layer. Um, it's outside. Yes. Um, and so that's a lot of times that's like the fat that sits in our butts and our thighs. Um, and so sometimes you know, in our arms. So a lot is that of not also lower abdominal though, too. Is that not subcutaneous on the outside? There is some, yeah. Not hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, there, there is. So in the abdomen area, so there's the fat that it's outside of sort of that abdominal cavity, um, that you can get visceral, uh, subcutaneous fat also. Um, and so that fat is thought to be less detrimental than the visceral fat, but it depends on where it is. So if it's fat in your legs, fat in your butt, um, the thought is that it's sort of acting like a sink and pulling lipids or fat away from where it, it wants to go, which is in the visceral area. Oh. It's acting sort of as a depot for fat that could be in your visceral area, but it's sort of the, the, the subcutaneous fat in your thighs is acting as a sink versus so the it's almost pulling it. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a better place for it to go, but it, it the fat will get stored there, hopefully, as opposed to if you're prone to gaining fat there, the fat will get stored there, hopefully, as opposed to your ab abdominal area. Um, but we can measure some, there is subcutaneous fat in the abdominal area um, where that's a little bit, because it's even, it's closer to the organ still, even though there's that abdominal cavity um, sort of helping to keep it from there, it's still like the proximity is still there. So subcutaneous fat in your belly area is not as ideal as subcutaneous fat in your butt area. Now, in, in when people are like my six pack muscles, right? Rectus abdominis and, and a couple other things going on there, right? Um, the subcutaneous fat is that plus genetics, right? Directly related to you seeing your six pack or not. Cause I think people, a lot of people get, a lot of people get upside down about like, well, <laughs> in fitness, right. In general, in the gym, like, Oh, I want abs, right. I want my obliques to pop. I want my, I want my abs. Like is that subcutaneous fat that's in the lower pooch area. You could say, right. Your lower abdominal, uh, the subcutaneous, not visceral. Like, is that something that stops you from seeing your six pack? Um, yeah, I think if, if you've got a lot of subcutaneous fat, even if it's not visceral, then it's going to cover those, those abdominal areas for sure. Uh, to speak about like the pooch area, that, that to me is like that you store fat where you're going to store fat. And it's really hard to say, target the, the pooch area. Um, unfortunately, like when I lose weight, it's in the upper body area and I would prefer it not to be in the upper body in the boob area. It sucks, mm. but that's just kind of where, where my fat leaves first and it sticks in the bottom area. Hold on. Are we genetically predisposed to where we're going to carry fat stores? And is that, is that based on our ethnicity? Is that like, do you have any, and this might be totally out of pocket. And if it is, we don't even have to go here, but is that related to ethnicity region uh, of the world or. Yeah. So like I, I won't speak to the ethnicity portion. Um, but I think there is a lot of genetic 
component of where we, where we do store fat. There's even like sex differences in where we store fat mm-hmm. Men have the, you know, the, the apple shaped bodies, they're more likely to store fat in the abdominal area versus women. Stop calling me fat, Jess. Yeah, we store fat. We tend to store fat in the, in the bottom area, which, which is a good thing. I mean, I think if you think about it, at least for women, um, you know, and, and this is going back to caveman days, but you need those fat stores to be able to support life when I, when you have children, like that fat needs to come from somewhere. And so, um, I think it, it's just sort of a, to me, it's a genetic predisposition of where you're going to gain weight. You can't, you can't say like, I'm just going to lose weight in my butt area because it might not be so. Is there any, is there any crossover to the same kind of findings when someone gets like a fat transfer, like when someone pulls fat and then gets it put somewhere else? <clears throat> yeah. I, you know what? I think there are studies that were done a long time ago, like the, the fat transfer studies. I don't, as far as health goes, I don't think those kind of panned out. Um, so I, I can't speak to what happens when you transfer fat from one area to another. Um, I think it's really interesting. And it'd be interesting to see what happens like metabolically, uh, when, when you start transferring fat, but yeah. Cause if like, you're pulling it from other places and you're giving, like you get a BBL and you get some fat transfer, plus you get some, some, some lift and tucking going on. Right. Like, I'm curious if that has any effect on, on anything else in the body other than like, it's pretty invasive. I would assume. <laughs> I, I don't think I'll ever try to get a fat, but who knows? Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what the metabolic effects of that would be if there are, I mean, it might just be a completely cosmetic thing that people choose to do. Got it. Got it. And then as far as like body fat percentage, is there, is there a pocket that, um, that there's widespread recommendation for both men and women that are healthy population for longevity? Yeah. So the, the, I've, I've looked for years for what ideal percent body fat is in, in humans. Um, and there is no consensus as to what defines an ideal percent body fat. Um, I, in my, in my research studies, I, I had to pick a cut point because we just, to, to start, to start doing research to define, um, obesity. And so I, I chose, this is based on my reading of the literature, but not necessarily what I would tell everybody in the world, um, a cut point of 30% body fat for women, um, and 23% body fat for men. So we, when we, when I do my research and define people as like higher adiposity versus lower adiposity, um, those are the cut points I use, but they are also pretty arbitrary that they're no- and 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what effects those have on, I mean, cause I mean, what, what if you have a body fat of 29%, is it really going to make that much of a difference if you jump up to 30 as far as your metabolic health goes? So these numbers are sometimes really arbitrary. Um, but the, the truth is the dirty truth is that really we don't have defined there. No one has agreed on a consensus for what is a, an ideal percent body fat more research. Everybody's screwed. You said, (laughs) no, I just need, we need more research. That seems to be the answer to a lot of this stuff. (laughs) It's my favorite answer. Um, yeah. So your findings with the study that was most recently published, um, were they, were they in line with your hypothesis when you started or not so much or. Yeah. Yeah. So our, our hypothesis when I started was, was that those who would have more visceral, like fat in the detrimental areas, visceral fat, um, would have worse mitochondrial function. Um, the surprise was 
to me, when, when we, we looked at the dichotomies in the two sexes and that like, they were just different relationships, which to me was fascinating. Um, and when, when I thought started, you know, you start thinking about some of these like evolutionary changes, it made sense. Women need more fat in their butts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that just sounds like such a niche, a niche thing to, to, to look at. And I guess everything that you do is, is niche to the, the regular common goer out here. Um, I want to pick on another one of your studies, uh, titled physical fitness, but not diet quality distinguishes lean and normal weight, obese adults. Um, I'm not sure if that's the actual title, but that's, what's listed on, on Emory's side. Um, first of all, can you talk about what NWO means and then why the average person should give a crap about that? And what can we even do with that and these findings? Yeah. So this study, um, this this was one so normal weight obesity is essentially you or I walking around with a normal quote normal BMI so less than twenty five kilograms per meter squared um, but high adipose high percent body fat um, and what I use to define those are those cut points that I just told you thirty three thirty and so those are the folks that we categorize as normal weight obese so they're walking around they you just get on the scale their BMI is normal perfectly fine. Um, but their percent body fat is, is much, is higher than it, than, than it is. And so we compare, so that, so that's normal weight obesity. Um, some people have called it skinny fat. I just, I hate that term. It's not fun. Uh, so we normal weight obesity is whatever. like a buzzword buzz phrase to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think the New York times even called it skinny fat. Um, but I can't use that, um, professionally can't you can't use that, that, that in a paper yeah people with skinny fat have yeah people who are skinny fat have, have worse disease um uh you can also i don't know and then we've i've tried hard thinking about what uh what other words because normal weight obesity kind of sucks too um so one term that we came up with was hidden adiposity which is kind of nice right like it's oh, you've got I higher adipose tissue but it's Oh, a hidden adiposity was the word that I was, that, oh, that okay. we came up with that, um, I kind of like better. You've just got hidden fat because you look normal, but you've got more percent body fat than, than, than someone else. That sounds anyway. better than NWO or skinny fat. Isn't it? Would, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I like it. Hidden adiposity. Um, we looked at, this was, again, this was a, a study of people that were connected a long time ago. Um, and we looked at their food records and we did DEXA scans to, to do their body composition. Um, these folks also underwent, um, did, uh, exercise testing to, to get VO2 max and some of that, the fitness testing, um, and just look to see if there were differences between our like normal weight, obese, overweight, obese. So people who have um, high BMIs, high percent body fat, and then those who were truly lean. So those who had lower percent body fat and normal BMI, um, and just kind of compared, we looked to see what, whether, whether there were differences between the groups in, um, diet quality and whether there were differences in the groups in, um, physical fitness. And what we found was that in, in this cohort, um, there were no, no major differences in what they were eating or how they were eating but the difference was more in their fitness, their physical, their exercise, basically exercise capacity was where that difference was, which kind of makes sense to me because those with normal weight obesity are also the ones that have, um, more, less muscle. Like so there's muscle 
uh, maybe an element of sarcopenia there, um, which is why their percent body fat is higher. Um, so to me, it sort of made sense why, why we're, it was physical fitness and not necessarily diet quality in this case. Got it. And you said something about food logs. Did I hear that right? Yeah. So, um, we self-reported data, all self-reported data, which is inherently flawed. Um, it's completely or, flawed. It, people it, think their, their protein shake is 200 cows when it's 960. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, that never happened to any of my clients. Never. Nope. Yeah, nope. No. Nope. You, you either. Right. Um, no. I'm sure you're very, very specific and precise when you tell people how much, how many calories you eat. Um, I, <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Yeah. All, a lot of the research that that's also really crappy. I'm trying not to curse on your, on your podcast. Right. <laughs> um, Only, look, look, miss Alvarez only don't curse. If you don't want to, you can say whatever you want on here. We've talked about everything. Say whatever you want. Okay. Anyway, I, I'll try not to curse. Uh, but curse yeah. You want. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Um, I, most of the diet data, when we look at diet in research studies is based on self-report. And so that immediately puts a bias in, in what, in any published literature that is related to self-report. Um, there are several and multiple reasons for that. Like number one, maybe I don't know what a cup of spaghetti noodles look like. So I'm just going to make it up and say that I had half a cup when really it was a cup or, or even say that I had two cups when really it was only half a cup. Um, and then there are tendencies for, for people who, uh, if they're in a research study and know that they're being observed, they might be more prone to, um, maybe not lie outright, but be just reduce the numbers just a little bit. Cause, cause you want, you want to please the investigators a lot of times when, when you're in these, these research studies. And so, um, they might not report everything that they've eaten uh, because they know someone's going to be looking at their food logs or, um, or, or they just don't truly know how much a cup of noodles or whatever they're eating looks like. So bottom line for that is that data research that you see based on self-report, um, there's always just always kind of question that and keep that in the back of your head um, that this is not going to be the hard truth because there's so much bias that goes into to these recording the food information. Um, the, the really cool studies are the ones where uh, I'd say people get put into a, a metabolic, like some ward hospital for X number of weeks and they're observed and their feet fed everything, you know, they, you can't have anything in or out and they measure all of their physical activity within this hospital ward. Um, so very, um, very clinical settings, very research-based, obviously hard to apply it to any general population, but it lets us get at some of the, uh-oh, you froze. Um, it lets us get at some of the, um, like more like physiology-based uh, answers. Got it. Got it. No, that totally makes sense. So, um, I mean, two. That's my dad. He just he just served me a beer. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, two things on the on the self report data. One um, is under reporting more of the hey, this could be the problem. Not over reporting, like under reporting, whether 
commission or omission. Like, Hey, either I'm intentionally doing this because someone's watching, or I just actually don't know how to measure any of this. Cause I don't know if it's cooked or raw. I don't know if I pay attention to the package or the package is even accurate. Um, is it more omission or commission there and yeah, underreporting? Yeah. Usually it's underreporting of like how many calories people truly, truly eat. Um, but, it, but it's hard to tell, like, unless we're like truly measuring, um, energy expenditure and, and there are ways to measure energy expenditure, uh, in everyone. And, and that's just another research intensive, um, thing that we could do. Uh, there's just no, no way to tell if someone's over reporting or under reporting, I guess, with, with, you know, with most of these research studies, these large research studies that a lot, a lot of the information that we get comes from, um, there's just always, always flaws. There's no perfect study ever. Um, so I, I don't like, I don't pretend that any, there's any study that is just like, wow, this is definitive, especially when it comes to nutrition. Um, it's just hard. So we just kind of, we continue doing research and you kind of look at the totality of the evidence versus just looking at one single study. Um, because science is, it's, it's just a, pro a process long-term is what's going to tell us the truth versus looking at just one little study. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I mean, I see underreporting with my clients. I see underreporting even on consultations when people are talking about, well, I'm eating. I'm like, there's just really no way that you're gaining two pounds a week and you're eating 1800 calories and you're moving seven days. Like there's just like, that's physically almost impossible. So I don't know how you're getting there. Like, I would love to see your, my fitness pal. Like, well, yeah, what I are mean, you doing? You, you can follow them around for, you can be their personal chef for, uh, for I'm a all good. Thank you though. Uh, <laughs> nobody pays me enough money to do that. Um, I'm good. And my follow-up question with that on the underreporting, because I thought that it would probably be underreporting on the clinical side, because if even just working with clients, that's happening all the time, like mm -hmm. these are the same these are the same kind of demographics of people in your controls uh, that are doing these kind of things. Do you know statistically what the margin of error is? No, I don't know statistically what the margin of error there is. Okay. Yeah. It's just, it's just a question. I'm like, mm, I wonder what that is. I mean, I don't even know how you would figure yeah, that and out. It out. You know, it, it might depend on the person. So mm -hmm. um, there, there are studies that have suggested that um, folks who are more overweight or have higher BMIs, um, uh, might fudge, might underreport a little bit more than, than leaner folks. Um, and it's, you know, it's not out of malice or anything. It's just, those are the trends that, that we see. Um, people also tend to overreport exercise. Um, so that's another, another aspect, which under here and we over here and yeah, we're like, so, wow, we have this deficit. What's happening? Yeah, there is. And so that like, what you're asking me, whether, what that margin of error is might, it might depend on, on who you're looking at. Okay. Yeah. No, I was just curious. I mean, I know that, that would be, you would basically have to, uh, have to be a deity yourself to have an understanding of what that, what that margin of error is across everything, but I'm yeah, sure someone's done maybe a meta-analysis or something of, yeah. of like a portion of. I, I bet if I searched the literature, I could find that answer for you. Um, hit me up another day and I'll, and I'll, and I'll answer, see, see if I can find it. But that kind of study to, to determine that margin of error would require what I was saying is like measuring total energy expenditure. So TDE, you'd have to look at that. Yes. Everyone. Yes. And using um, methods such as uh, they call it doubly labeled water and then mass spec machines to just to learn how many calories a person has burned basically in, in the last, I don't know, X number of week, and then mm -hmm. compare it to 
what they say they've been eating and how many calories they said they've eaten. And so then you could kind of determine what that fudge factor would be. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure there are studies that have done that. I just haven't, I don't know the numbers. But then essentially you'd have to, like, if that was the case, I mean, you could obviously draw, uh, draw conclusions, right. Around what different demographics that have been studied extensively across different, um, different time horizons would be, or could be potentially underreporting or overreporting on, on either of those. And then just make a guess and assign, Hey, margin error is probably this. So if we account for that, we're probably here. But I mean, it sounds like you'd have to compare a lot of other things to get that. And that's not really where you're at, but I was just curious, you know, maybe you knew that. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's something though, when you're working with your clients that, that you, you can sort of, I mean, you don't know the exact numbers of margin varia, but you know, with that situation that you're saying that someone's gaining two pounds, but reporting, you know, seven days a week versus, you know, uh, no calories, um, you, you, you can probably kind of figure that out yourself and say, all right, well, let's try. I I have a, I have a, um, I'll go ahead and be the first one to say a cuss word. Uh, I have a bullshit detector that when I talk to my clients and they have, there seems to be a trend that they're gaining weight, not losing weight yet. They're checking off three workouts a week and they're walking three other days a week for 30 minutes in zone two. And they're eating the meals that they say that they're eating. I've got a pretty easy bullshit to um, margin of error. And it's about 25, 30%. Because, uh, you're usually off by that because you're not measuring, you're not weighing anything. You're not scooping anything. You're guesstimating. And you're saying, well, my, my Apple watch said that in this elliptical workout, I burned 1800 calories. Like, I'm sorry. I don't know who told you that that was the truth, but you didn't burn 1800 calories in a 30 minute elliptical exercise. Show yeah. me someone that can do that 30 minutes. What did you do? Sprint? I love that. <laughs> for 30 minutes straight? That didn't happen. I believe it didn't happen or you would be hungrier than anyone I've ever met in my life. 30 right. minutes? Deserve those calories. Right. So I was just curious from a, from from your perspective uh, if that was a thing, but I'll, I'll do some digging. That uh, sounds, sounds pretty cool. Um, a couple things that I kind of want to jump into. One is still around your research, right? Um, can you talk to me about the overarching findings of those that are deficient in vitamin D and what that looks like for an application to gen pop? I know that you don't necessarily study gen pop with that, but can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So, so my, um, PhD work was, was looking at vitamin D, um, status. So there's vitamin D and then there's our, what, what we have, like, like what we take as a nutrient vitamin D and then how, what our vitamin D blood levels sort of look like. Um, and what, I, I guess I'll start the story by telling you what my dissertation work was in. And then, and that's kind of what has led me to where I, my thoughts on vitamin D is I was looking at um, relationships between vitamin D status, like circulating vitamin D levels and um, risk for diabetes. So insulin resistance, as well as risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, because a lot of the uh, epidemiologic data shows that people who are have lower vitamin D levels are at higher risk for heart, everything, heart disease, diabetes, obesity. Um, I've got, I've got a, a slide that lists every single disease that is shown to be associated correlation with vitamin D. Um, and 
what I have come to the conclusion, and I think is where the, the general vitamin D literature is showing is that um, you don't want to be deficient in vitamin D. Um, so you, you want to have enough vitamin D levels. And then we, there's arguments about how, what your vitamin D levels should be. Um, but the reason for that is not necessarily that it's vitamin D that is, um, causing you to have vitamin D deficiency that is causing you to have, uh, diabetes or all of these other diseases is that when you're looking at blood levels of vitamin D, um, it is kind of a global marker of overall health. So people who are more physically fit have higher vitamin D levels. Why? I don't know. Maybe they're eating more. They're outside in the sun. Um, so that's just one thing to differentiate when people are talking about, you know, these, these research studies and looking at vitamin D and the relationship between whatever your favorite disease is. Um, the vitamin D is sort of a, a biomarker that to me of, of overall health. Um, if you have true vitamin D deficiency, um, then that could then start influencing your bone health. Cause we need vitamin D. Vitamin D is absolutely essential for, for calcium. Oh, Hey, this is Ben. What's up, Ben? Why do mommy's working? Um, I need to go to the bathroom. Oh, thanks. Go quickly. Close the door. I don't need to. Oh, he just needs to pee life of a mother. <laughs> um, where was I? Okay. Vitamin D deficiency. Uh, you don't want to be vitamin D deficient, um, because we need it for, for healthy bones, but bottom line, that's it. There's also some evidence that vitamin D is like legit, um, could be related to health immunity. So if you're vitamin D deficient, then, um, your immune system could be, um, not ideal. Uh, but as far as like, I don't know, I think a lot of studies have done vitamin D supplementation trials, like the intervention type studies. And those usually fall flat because we're not maybe looking at actual vitamin D levels in the blood. Um, or we're also dealing with some of these people may have already had perfectly fine vitamin D levels. Um, and so just adding more to what's already good is not going to do great things. Um, moral of the story is don't walk around with vitamin D deficiency. Um, but it's probably when you read the stu studies that say vitamin D is going to cure cancer, um, kind of think about what, what they're looking at. Cause most, most of the studies, when, when you put them together in meta-analyses have not shown vitamin D to be, um, the cure for, for anything yeah. except vitamin D deficiency. How does some, well, I mean, I would hope someone could that vitamin D deficiency with vitamin D. Yeah. Um, but how does someone know if they have a vitamin deficient vitamin D deficiency? You go to the doctor, there are ways you, you ask for serum, ask them to measure your serum 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels. Um, one more time for the people yeah. in the back. Good. 25 hydroxy vitamin D don't let them measure your 125 dihydroxy vitamin D levels, because that's not going to tell you your overall vitamin D status. So there are several levels of vitamin D. I think I started saying that and I got completely distracted. Um, so there's the vitamin D that we take, that we eat in our blood. You know, what am I saying? The vitamin D that we eat from our foods, we get from metabolism. Our Interesting. Yeah. And get a lot of vitamin D there. Um, Never mind. I just, I was just thinking about the book that I was supposed to write about vitamin D and vampires, but anyway, um, stay tuned listeners. <laughs> I, uh, there's the vitamin D that we get from our diet 
and what we produce in our skin from the sun. Um, but then that gets converted to 25 hydroxy vitamin D, which is what sort of circulates and tells us our vitamin D status. And then that the 25 hydroxy vitamin D then, then gets converted to 125 dihydroxy vitamin D, which is sort of the active, the hormonal form of vitamin D that has its action on the cells. So um, lots of different ways to measure vitamin D. And so if you were to go to the doctor and tell them you want your vitamin D levels checked, you just want to be sure they're measuring the correct the 25, not 125, the 25. Yeah. Exactly. When does 25 convert to 125? Is there like some part of the process in the body that that happens or. Um, when it gets to the kidneys, it, that's where it's converted. Okay. Um, and so like general recommendation to make sure that you have enough vitamin D without going and paying for a, a $120 test from your general practitioner, uh, sunlight, what else? Sunlight, um, you can eat vitamin D rich sources. They're not a lot of vitamin D rich sources. Um, mil milk is fortified with vitamin D. I think breakfast cereals are fortified with vitamin D. Um, fatty fish have, are great vitamin D sources. Um, most people, I think if you're, if you're walking around with deficiency, you'll, you'll get put on a, just a vitamin D supplement. Just like an oral, oral supplement. Oral, that's mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. Hmm. Um, in your professional opinion, is there any secret to fat loss, not weight loss, but fat loss and subsequent management of lower body fat percentage? Um, I think the secret to fat loss is to eat a high quality diet, less processed foods, lots of vegetables, eat enough protein and do exercise strength training to be able to build that muscle. Um, that in turn will, will lead to fat loss. Yeah. How does fasting play a role in any of that? Um, yeah, fasting works for fat loss. Also, you're going to lose muscle too. If you're not, if you're not eating anything, um, I think fasting is, uh, I like to call it a tool in your toolbox for, um, for people who want to lose weight quickly, I guess. Um, it's those things you won't see as being sustainable. Um, because I mean, fat, the, if you look at the studies of, of all these, these fasting studies and, and there is good research su supporting fasting and weight loss, um, or fasting and fat loss. Um, but my, my question is how sustainable that is. Like we all have, hope not all, um, you know, we all have lives. I can't fast from five in the morning to 5 PM at night. I like, I enjoy lunch with friends and coworkers. Um, so my quality of life is, is much better because I don't fast. Um, so it's just, I think it's, it's a tool for people who want to lose weight quickly. Um, it's not the only tool. Uh, but I don't think it's, it's sustainable. Okay. But, um, you know, we're defining fasting as just time restricted eating or is there another definition of fasting, which also I like, if you skip breakfast, but I guess that counts as fasting and time restrictive eating. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm not a proponent of fasting. Um, just cause like that intentional just, fasting, like, Hey, I'm going to skip a meal. Like that's what you're not a proponent of. Yeah. I mean, I think if, I, like I said, I, I think it's something that, that is useful for people who need to cut their calories and, and feel like they eat most of their calories between the hours of X and X. So I'm just going to not eat my calories between the hours of X and X. Um, 
but I, I don't, I don't find it to be like one of these long-term fixes for, for losing weight, um, or for maintaining or sustaining weight loss rather. So it checks box one, but not box two. It fails the test and does not does pass. It, it does go not pass and does not collect 200. Nope. Doesn't pass my sniff test. I, but, but like I said, there, there are research, there's, there's good research, um, looking at time restricted feeding and showing that it helps with weight loss. It's the long term term part that, that we don't really know about that okay. my hunch is it doesn't help. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to go. Um, if you're cool with it, I want to, uh, respect your time. I want to go a little bit, kind of pop, 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 pop this or that, like a few, few really quick diving into a few things that I find interesting. Also, we have some questions from people that they submitted. And okay. so I would love to hit you with some of the other things that I've got. And then that, but you may go as long or as short as you want on them. Is that, gotcha. is that fair? That's fair. Okay. So fad diets, is there anything uniquely beneficial with keto, whole 30, vegan, vegetarian, plant-based carnivore or otherwise? Um, oof, you just gave me a range of them and I could probably pick apart every single one. Um, but if it's a fast, a fad diet, I'm going to tell you guys all the boring stuff that you know and don't want to hear. Um, they're often sensationalized and most of them will not be sustainable in the long term. Okay. So fad diets are not sustainable. And, and I don't, I I 100% agree there. I'm not labeling necessarily vegan, plant-based carnivore as fad diets. Yeah. That's a lot. Those are lifestyles, right? Well, yeah. But I think that, I mean, some people do do them for the long term, but then other people use any of those things that I just named or Noom or Jenny Craig or Weight Watcher, whatever, to like cut weight super quick. And uh, I mean, anything that's that's not sustainable forever. If you can't do it forever, why do it for a day, right? Right. Yeah. And and yeah, I I agree with you. Like we, I don't think we could define being vegan or vegetarianism um, as a fad diet. I, I think it's, it's a, perfectly respectable and acceptable way, um, to, to eat. Uh, and people are able to maintain those diets long-term, um, if they're doing them correctly, which I think, I think there's a big learning curve to being able to, um, eat a purely vegetarian or vegan based diet, uh, and get all of the nutrients that you need. It's doable. And, and it's, and yes, it is, it is healthy. Um, but it takes, it takes, I think a lot of work to, to, to be able to, um, get everything you need from, from these diets. Let's pause there for a second before we sure. rapid fire on everything else, because yeah. vegan, vegetarian, and carnivore are uniquely interesting to me because they almost seem dogmatic, right? They almost seem like, Hey, they, and dare I say this for anyone that follows any of the three, they almost seem like religions and people are like, I will not touch anything from an animal. I will only touch things from animals. I will only eat eggs and fish and I will not touch anything else. Yeah, I, I, I will, I try not to argue with the reasons behind people who choose some of these diets. Like some people decide that that's the way they want to eat for health or ethical reasons or whatever. And, um, more power to you if it's vegan or vegetarian, we can have words about this carnivore diet. Well, let's pull out the ethical concerns, right? Because we're talking about nutrition here. You and I are not uh, priests, right? Or like, let's pull out the, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let's pull out the ethical concerns real quick. And I mean, just from a nutritional standpoint, 
vegan versus vegetarian versus carnivore, you know, carnivore MD, Paul Saladino has a lot to say about the carnivore side. And on the vegan side, you've got a bunch of people that are massive proponents. And then a lot of vegetarians I'm finding doing consultations, working with clients, they're more flexitarian. They're not really vegetarians. They're just like, Hey, I don't eat red meat or I don't eat chickens. I only eat eggs or I only eat lean fish. Right. But like from a nutritional standpoint, can you give me just like a, not a one statement, but just in each of those buckets, like pros, cons. Yeah. I I think for any one of those three, if you can meet all of your nutrient needs through the diet, it's fine. Right. Um, with vegans and vegetarians, we might, uh, we would worry about specific nutrients that are just hard to come by if you're not eating animal products. Um, sometimes protein is even hard to come by, uh, iron, iron, you can get, um, B12. So some of the animal based, the, the nutrients that most of us can get from, from, from animal based products. Um, if you can get, do that, do it correctly and get all of the nutrients that you physically need. Great. Um, same, same with the carnivore diet, but if you're only eating meat, I don't think you're getting all of the plant products that you need, uh, to function or fiber. Um, so that, that is one, one that I will, I'm going to give that one a thumbs down. Uh, you seem you uniquely frustrated at the carnivore diet. I just don't understand it. It's like, where do you get your fiber? How do you poop? I don't get it. You can ask Joe Rogan about that because oh, he did it for, he did it for a month. Um, <laughs> well, but he actually, so he, he did two things though. He didn't just eat regular meat. So what he did was he ate basically only red meat. And then the only other thing that he supplemented was jalapenos. Why? That's just dumb <laughs> for, for a whole month. Okay. Well, um, so I, I am a veggie pusher and if you're not going to eat vegetables with your diet, your meal, your diets, then I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> mm. Okay. Did you know that I never eat veggies until, uh, until you were up my arse about veggies all day, every day, you would not I see anything what? green on my plate. If I can influence one person, I, I'm happy. <laughs> she has made it to the promised land. Here we are eating veggies. I actually think you've in, uh, I actually think you've very much influenced a lot of people at the gym. Um, a lot of people to eat more veggies. I'm seeing a I lot of so. stories that you're tagged in. I think one of my, that's like one of the highlights in my, of when people start tagging me on their beautiful veggie foods. I just, I like, it warms my heart. Um, so yeah, if anyone wants to tag me and show me all their veggie porn, I'm, I'm here for it. Back to the rapid fire. Um, whole 30. Yeah, I think it's, it, I think it's great. It um, promotes whole foods less processed foods. I see nothing wrong with whole 30 keto. When you lose all the joy of your life, I don't think it's sustainable. It's great for a quick fix. Okay. Um, seed oils. That one's a little bit more controversial. Um, there's some research and, and, uh, suggesting that they, that they are more pro-inflammatory, um, compared to, to other oils. Um, the verdict is still out there's cause the, the general, when we look at the diet as a whole, um, or just studies that have looked at whole, whole diets and looking at different seed oils or monounsaturated, polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, those generally show that polyunsaturated fatty acids are good. Um, so verdict is still out. That's actually something that, um, 
that I am and, and, and doing research and is looking at different kinds of oils um, and seeing how it might affect actually bone health and, and obesity. Uh, stay tuned. But I would, I, I don't, I would I don't, love to see your research on that because everyone is ranting and raving all over the internet about seed oils. Yeah, I, I, I am not ranting and raving at this point just because I, I don't think there's any definitive word um, out there. And, you know, if this, I, I don't know, I mean, I think there's probably a lot worse things that we can eat than seed oils, you know? Mm, hot takes, hot takes. Okay. Um, GMOs. Um, I think, <laughs> I think that's sort of, um, it's sort of a bougie stance to poo poo anything that's made with GMOs. Uh, same goes for organic foods. I, I don't, um, more than two thirds of the population cannot afford to consume these really expensive, um, foods. Uh, and so um, my thought is if you're going to eat an apple, eat an apple, don't worry about whether it's organic or not, because eating that apple is a lot healthier than, than not eating one, right. Um, or broccoli or whatever I'm using veggies as my example. Um, so yeah, I, 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 it doesn't GMOs do not make me lose sleep at night. And I hope that they don't make individuals lose sleep and not choose a specific food that is healthy oatmeal, um, because it's, you know, it's supposed to have GMOs in it. Ooh, it, I think it's all bull. So it doesn't boil your blood, uh, and you don't stay up at night worried about thing, how many yeah. GMOs you're eating. The only thing that boils my blood are people that promote only organic and GMO foods. Mm, we know some people like that. Um, moving on for now. So GMOs, I mean, but I guess one clarification uh, on that, if you have the option, if you have the means, if you have the resources to go organic and non-GMO or to go GMO, like, I mean, even at the watermelons, watermelons have seeds in them, right? People don't realize that watermelons have seeds in them unless they're modified to not have seeds in them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So like my life would suck if I had to continue to eat watermelons with seeds in them. I mean, I don't like to do that either. So I'm a little, I'm a little annoying on that, but if you have the means, if you have the option, uh, would you recommend someone go with something that's non-GMO and organic? Or do you say, hey? Think, yeah, honestly, I don't think it makes, it's not going to make that much of a difference on your health. If you are eating generally healthy foods, eating your vegetables, organic or not, otherwise, you know, it's, it's I don't think it's going to, it's not going to make that much of a difference. But if someone wants to take a morality stance and say, oh, I only eat hygiene. I know GMO food and only eat organic, whatever they can, they can, it's their decision. If you want to use money, spend your money on that. That's fine. Um, I don't, I don't approve of people looking down on me or anyone else for not, uh, buying organic or buying non-GMO foods or whatever. Jess is not a fan of pseudo-moralistic stances on food that people wow. can only talk on their privilege because they have more money. Got it. Thank you. Got it. Got it. I love that. Um, so clean food, dirty food, these labels, your thoughts. Yeah. So there are lots of definitions or people's definition of clean as it varies. Um, you know, some people think clean is organic. Other people think only whole foods and anything processed is not clean, but, uh, my stance. And, and this is something that I 
kind of learned over the, to, to be careful about when I say clean foods, when I think clean, I think whole foods, less processed. Um, but I try not to use that word because using the word clean implies that other foods are dirty. Um, and unless you don't wash your potatoes before you eat them, who do we your know foods that are that? dirty. We are, we are not um, picking, some of us might pick up food off the ground and eat it. That's dirty. Um, but just, I, you know, demonizing foods as, 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 as dirty as is not, it's, it's not um, conducive to, to just our overall environment of, you know, this diet culture. Blah. Yeah. So it's not sexy. It's not conducive to helping people. And it maybe oftentimes just confuses people. Yeah. I mean, if you don't know what the definition of clean is, then that, that's just confusing. So I, I try to stay away, away from the word clean. Um, just just for that, that same kind of moralistic type thing, like it also implies that they're dirty foods and that they're not dirty, dirty foods. We except dirty potatoes. Um, we, you know, just like what we talked about earlier, that's fine if you want to eat a snack of an Oreo sometimes. Yeah. No, I totally hear you there. Um, excuse me. Um, is whey bad? W-H-E-Y. Whey protein? No, I, no. I use whey protein uh, in all of my shakes. Um, I think it has, it's probably the most bio, when you, when you compare whey protein versus some other plant proteins, um, whey has, it's bioavailability as far as amino acid goes is, is higher than, than the others. Um, so no, it is, it is not bad. Not that plant protein powders or anything are bad. Also, um, you can, you can get what you need from plant protein powders also, but I, I again, I don't demonize whey. I don't demonize dairy or anything from animals. Yeah. Okay. Got another question. Organic versus not, does it matter? But we already answered that. Um, someone asked why are carbs bad? Carbs are not bad. My God, we need carbohydrates. Um, they, they fuel us. Uh, they are what our brain needs. When we don't get carbohydrates, our bodies produce ketones because it needs some form. Um, the, I think the issue with carbohydrates, maybe, maybe is that people, there's a tendency to eat more carbohydrates. And that is sort of like, like you and I love chocolate and sweet things. And that's, those are carbohydrate rich foods. Um, so that's where we would get most of our calories from. And so if we were to cut them, then, then, you know, it, it would cut calories. Um, but there there's carbohydrates are not bad. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful fiber in whole grains. That's a carbohydrate. That is something we need in our bodies. And we need carbs to fuel us if we're moving, right? If we're doing high intensity exercises. Um, so yeah, don't, don't be scared of carbohydrates. Now, do we think, can we make an assumption that maybe they're talking about starches here? Like they're, surely they're not talking about veggies, right? Like I, I think yeah. that, and I mean, I'm making a total assumption this person yeah. is not sitting in front of us, but like people look at, uh, for example, like when people get on consultations or are talking to me like, James, I, I shouldn't eat so much rice. I shouldn't eat so many potatoes or I shouldn't. And I'm like, what do you mean? Should have, would like, should, must, can't yeah. so, like, what do you mean? I mean, there, I, I definitely, I tend to, um, uh, choose or promote more whole grains compared to white processed foods. Um, so you can have whole grain bread mm -hmm. or you can eat white bread, white sliced bread, which 
Both are delicious, right? Um, the whole grain that you get more bang for your buck compared to nutritionally, nutritionally compared to the, to the white bread. Same with rice. Um, I tend to go for whole like brown rice compared to white rice, but there are other cultures that eat white rice and are perfectly healthy. So I, again, I, I can't feel like I'm demonizing rice. Rice is pretty healthy, neutral food. I, I choose the brown because I prefer more fiber. Um, but that, yeah, that I wouldn't be scared of starches. Same with spaghetti noodles. I go whole grain. Others choose the white pasta. I enjoy. It's kind of one of those, like if, if you can make an informed decision, make an informed decision. But at the end of the day, if it's going to be eat pasta and like absolutely always, or never eat pasta, like probably the never is not the answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people can go without eating pasta, but never eat carbohydrates is just not, not a way to go. It's not sustainable. Yeah. Okay. Um, somebody else said, is the food pyramid as we were taught in school, correct? Yeah. Um, so that one is one, the food pyramid that we were taught in school changed. Like, I don't know what year, whoever's asking you, born. uh, this person's like, this person's like, uh, I would say probably like somewhere between 28 and 32. Okay. So, uh, it has gone this food pyramid or government food period. I mean, I think it started in the 1940s with the four food groups and then like then morphed into a pyramid and every, so it changes, it changes with the science and what we end up finding. Like I said, um, science changes and what we find are healthy. Um, one day may, may not be another day where we find that we like oversimplified something. Um, I think in the food, I, yeah, it depends on which food pyramid this person was talking about. Uh, at one point there was, um, I think breads and like all starches on, which starches are not bad, um, but like our whole food guide pyramid with, it was layered with starches on the bottom and then you had like veggies and fruit and da, 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 da. Um, that we, we now realize was probably not a good idea because then people started eating nothing. They were scared they became scared of fats because fats were at the top like this little triangle so people started oils and whatnot yeah people started to become scared of that and so then they overconsumed all these delicious fat-free foods that came out and um i don't know if if you remember your mom or anyone eating like these snack well cookies um that were you know on the label it said this is a low-fat food fat-free food but they were not carbohydrate they were not calorie free and so people just started eating a lot of them um so yeah, question, does, is the food guide pyramid that I learned bad? No, uh, it's not bad. It's probably changed since then because our views on nutrition evolve with, with the science as we do more science. Um, so it's probably different now that, that you grew up with than the one you grew up with. I like that answer. Uh, what somebody else asked, what's the biggest lie with food? <laughs> oh God, <laughs> that's a great answer. Uh, a great question. And That's not an answer. You got the answer. Come on, Jess. I don't have the answer. Um, just in your opinion, like doesn't have to be something that you stand behind for the rest of your life, but just off rip your head, you say, uh, the biggest lie around food or nutrition is. I think it's going to go. The biggest lie is that carbohydrates are bad or fats are bad. That one specific macronutrient or micronutrient is bad or that one specific macronutrient micronutrient is going to save and cure you. Those are the biggest lies to me. Mm, okay. We won't unpack that one. I'm uh, predisposed to loving one macronutrient. So we will just continue to move forward. <laughs> um, somebody else asked, should I not eat the fat on red meat? 
I wouldn't, I don't think it tastes good. Um, I think it depends on what your health risks are. If you are, if you have high, if you're prone to, or just genetically inclined or have risk for cardiovascular disease, I would probably stay away from saturated fats. Okay. But for, for people that aren't struggling with that or don't have that in their bloodline, like you're probably fine. I, I wouldn't choose to do it every day. I, I, I tend, I tend to choose and I would promote more lean meats, um, than, than the fattier red. What's meat. the percentage breakdown that you would classify lean? Oh gosh. 85, 15, 90, 10, 93, uh, 97, three, 90. I, yeah. I, well, I, I'm thinking ground beef. Most of that ends up cooking off. Um, so yeah, I think it doesn't matter to like 85, 15, I, not the end of yeah, the world. If it's ground, that's fine. Cause it usually ends up cooking off unless you're doing like some sort of stew and you don't drain the meat, the fat off of the meat. Um, and in that case, I, I would personally not, I'd rather not eat all of that extra fat. Um, so I would, I would drain it okay. if I'm going a high per, higher percent fat. Um, if it's 90, 10, then usually there's very little fat on there anyway. Got it. Uh, somebody else asked, does sugar make me fat? And I guess for, for this, let's approach it both from them. I have an assumption that, um, when it's saying sugar, they're lumping fruit in there. Right. And then let's also then maybe about added refined sugar because i think those are two different conversations can i change my lie question i think um that sugar that fruit are bad for you is the biggest lie i've ever heard um so yeah i i wouldn't count fruit as as a bad food um does sugar make me fat sugar fat calories make every make you fat like it's not just sugar that is making people fat. If that's what you overconsume, then then maybe it is. Um, Got it. So someone should look at what they're overconsuming, not necessarily the macronutrient, right. um, like villainizing or demonizing or oh, this happens or yeah. I'm 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 trying not to demonize one specific thing, except yeah. like highly highly processed foods are probably less not the best less, thing less to, ideal than um, less ideal to eat in high quantities. Yes. Okay. Uh, artificial sweeteners, are they bad? No, I, I think when you look at the literature, you can find some studies that suggest that they're not good for you. Um, but the totality of the evidence suggests that they don't do any harm and they might even help you reduce your calorie consumption. If a lot, most of your calories are from Cokes. And like Coke added sugar. Products. Yeah. Um, why do they get a bad rap though? And this is not a question, but like, why do artificial sweeteners get such a bad rap? And, and what is classified as an artificial sweetener? Like stevia and, and stevia equal, um, aspartame, um, the word itself, artificial people, you know, that's one of those dirty words that, that people who <laughs> moralize that this is my opinion that moralize foods uh see and they're like oh i don't want anything artificial in, in my body but then they have no problem getting botox to their face but whatever we'll talk about that another day or shoving cocaine up their nose but yeah yeah um shots of tequila all the time but no i'm not going to eat an artificial sweetener god no uh yeah i um there there you might find some studies suggesting that they're bad for you that they might impact the liver um most of those studies have been done in rats, not humans. How close um, are we to rats though? Cause don't we take a lot of, don't we take a lot of syntheses of, of conclusions from. Yeah. Well, people do, testing? people do. 
they do a lot of conclusions based on rat studies, mouse studies, um, without looking at what it actually does in humans. Um, so that's something like that's something important when, when you read some sort of headline or some new study, um, this numerical drug, look at the original source and was it done in rats? Um, we're, we're humans. The rats have different, like there are some similarities, sure. And it's a starting point for asking the next research question that is supposed to, that should be in humans. Um, humans are, rats are not humans. You can't, you can't base what I will never base what I tell somebody off of a rat study or how I treat my own body off of what I've read from a rat study. Got it. So you need, you need more, uh, you need more research. Theme of the, to the, theme uh, of the circular argumentation that we need more research. Just keep, Got keep it. me, uh, keep me employed. We're fine. Got it. My goodness. Uh, what's the number one recommendation that you have, uh, for gen pop? Well, I added for gen pop, but it just says, what is the number one recommendation you have for nutrition? Eat your vegetables, eat more. <laughs> How did I know that was going to come out um, I, I honestly, though, I think it, when I when I think about what others are eating, I find that um, people don't eat enough fruits and they don't eat enough fruits are probably OK. Um, it's vegetables that people don't eat. Like I you, you kind of look around and you see people. Yeah. <laughs> so if I had to pick me, just me personally, I, I that's what I promote is eating more more fruits and veggies. Um, I think they're chock full of fiber and antioxidants and phytochemicals that, that we need. Um, I don't think fruits and veggies are going to cure anything, you know, cure fruits and veggies alone are going to cure it. You got to, you have to look at the whole diet. Um, but I, I would suggest adding fruits and veggies to your diet and maybe it'll replace, uh, some of the other foods that you, you're, you're just over consuming. You said that me detoxifying my body by drinking yeah. by drinking fruit juice in the morning will not give me powers to go to another dimension. Is that what you said? There is no such thing as food or any product detoxifying your body. Your liver does a perfect job of that, unless mm. your unless your liver is broken. Okay, here's a controversial one: the Food Babe IG account. Should I follow? No, but you know who a great counter to the Food Babe IG account is? Is the Science Food Babe. The Science Absolutely. Food Babe. Yes. Um, I think it's the Science Food Babe. I'll, I'll send you the link to it so you can share it with everyone. It is, it's one of my favorite accounts. Um, Science-based, evidence-based, um, complete opposite to the food babe who has yeah, so I mean food babe let's let's like unpack that for just like two seconds here why why is that not a good account to follow I mean you and I both like personally we know what that account looks like but why should people because her name gets thrown away or not thrown away thrown around with her cookbooks and her recommendations and her products and this that and the other but why should people not pay attention to that uh it, it's it's it, the the site number one it's trying to sell its own products but um, it sensationalizes a lot of things that just aren't true. It's, it's based off of pseudoscience. Things aren't real. Um, uh, so I, and it's most of the information that is conveyed is not evidence science based. Um, so I, I would, I wouldn't suggest following that website, that Instagram site or whatever, but so Dr. Alvarez does not co-sign. 
We will Hi. put it in the show notes. Does not co-sign food, babe. I'm gonna get death Sorry, threats. girl. I'm going to get death threats now. Uh, thanks, Preach. Not death threats, but she might come for your throat because we will clip this. Um, so another question. Should I not be drinking alcohol to be healthy? Um, I think it depends on how much alcohol you drink. There, There's... There's some pretty good evidence suggestive that, you know, you, you can drink alcohol in moderation and wine and, and get um, lovely antioxidants from there. You can also get them from grapes. Um, I, I think a lot of people overconsume alcohol um, and probably underreport how much they're drinking. And that can contribute to um, not getting to your health goals is how much alcohol you drink. Um, so it's just kind of taking a look at what you're actually drinking and, um, making change in that way if you can and then obviously if there is a problem seeking help to reduce your alcohol consumption is important so always more research and seek help if you need it easy right cool we got three more um is soda and diet soda okay um i'm fine i'm personally okay with diet soda uh water's always better right um i think soda there's nothing wrong with it unless you're you're drinking too much of it and it is adding excess calories to, to what you're eating on a daily basis, um, which it does add more calories to what you're eating on a daily basis. What does excess mean? Just outside of the parameters of tracking towards your goals or excess for a healthy gin pop individual? Or yeah, like I mean, I think, um, excess towards tracking your goals. It's, it, it is truly empty calories. Like there's nothing, <laughs> um, of value to except maybe sheer pleasure. Cause it tastes good. Um, so dopamine is what you're getting out of that drinking a, a regular Coke and it's fine. If you want to treat yourself, it's just kind of treat it like a dessert though. Not an everyday thing. Okay. Okay. Um, our boy JP DeKemper asked, uh, which vegetables are the most metal? That is such a JP question. And I love it. Um, I, I'm going to go with, um, those of the cruciferous family. And, um, I don't know why I'm just trying to promote broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts. All vegetables are metal. Um, I think people should veer out and try, try some of the vegetables that they have not tried before. And for some reason, I think, uh, some of the cruciferous ones, um, are the ones that are not eaten as much. Okay. They got lots of great stuff in them. Okay. And last rapid fire question before we wrap up here, uh, somebody asked, why is nutrition so difficult? I don't know who to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of it is that it gets muddled. Number one, everybody eats, everyone has an opinion on, on nutrition. Um, we are very highly influenced by, by influencers who don't, you know, they're very good at influence. They look beautiful. Um, and so they're just really charismatic people who are telling you, um, pseudoscience and it sounds legit. And so you, you're just going to believe you're like, wow, that makes total sense. And so you believe that, um, I think learning who learning what resources, um, to trust are, are where you should go. And, and, and some of that is just kind of, um, asking professionals, uh, you know, what are the trusted resources? Um, usually my, my, uh, sort of sign that, that something is not trusted is if they're, um, really, they're trying to sell something as like a miracle cure for anything, or like, if it sounds too good to be true, it's, it's not, it, it's fake. Um, so some of those are, are, are my, uh, 
what I don't trust as much. Um, also places or websites or anything that starts like demonizing foods are, are another one that I, I tend not to trust. Okay. Got it. Got it. And I have, I have just one question because this came up. Um, not so recently I had another dietitian on here. Um, a registered dietitian, licensed dietitian, uh, wonderful woman. And she said that um, no one outside of registered dietitians has any business giving nutritional advice um, and not your attack on, on her as a person, but what's your stance on that kind of statement from someone in your field? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think if you're trying, I, I don't, I don't think anyone outside of like registered dietitians or physicians should give any advice on like medical nutrition therapy. Like it's definitely outside of um, anyone else's scope to say, okay, well, you know, eat this to, to treat your insulin levels and blah, 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 blah. Um, so that, so that's like one, one hard heart. Like, I think that's a hard um, no for me. Um I think it's, it's fine. Like health, there are health coaches who, you know, we know generally good advice that we can give our, our clients and patients that is perfectly acceptable. Um, but you're not trying to treat a disease at all. Uh, you're just trying to, you know, make sure your person is well-rounded and, and generally in, in good health. Um, it starts getting tricky. I think when you start personalizing things to treat specific stuff, like I'm going to treat your diabetes with whatever you're choosing is it's probably outside of, um, of, so, of someone who hasn't gone through extensive schooling to, to be able to do in medical training. Got it. So medical intervention, um, for specific diseases is something that you would agree is out of scope, but general recommendations on, Hey, you might need to eat a few more veggies. Maybe you need to have some more protein. Maybe we can get you to this weight loss goal or fat loss goal. If we take out that we're not trying to treat a disease, for you, right? Like that's not out of scope. Uh, I mean, that's all stuff that you can find on the internet and the, the U S government publishes all that information too. So I, I personally don't think it's out of scope. I'm also not a, you know, I'm not trying to treat clients and I yeah. don't have, um, I'm not trying to compete for, for folks. Yeah. Either, so and I guess, I guess that's, that's kind of my only question there because there's, there's a whole last licensure, uh, that registered dietitians created for coaches to be able to do like precision nutrition, the mm. CrossFit nutrition, NASM nutrition, like all of these certifying bodies had RDs put together programs so that coaches could be certified in the basic fundamentals of nutrition to help their clients. So it just, it was a little off putting the last time that I had a conversation with someone about this, when it was like absolute full stop, you shouldn't be giving nutrition recommendations because that just sounds like you want to take, you want the money opposed to someone else being able to help them. So long as we're not talking about disease, because I agree with you 100% that I have no business telling you that, Hey, we're going to cure your diabetes with the nutritional recommendations that I give you. Like, get out of here. No, now I'm not even gonna make that claim. Cause that's not true. Yeah. I, um, you know, I, I, on one hand, like I agree that as, as dietitians, we we've gone to school for a long time. We went to school for a long time compared to someone who, you know, maybe did a 15 day, one day course on, on something. Um, but I, like I said, I, I don't have any problem with, you know, the world promoting general good health 
recommendations. Uh, I think that's something people should be spreading more of. Yeah. I mean, it also is spreading the right information. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just seems counterintuitive. There's a whole, there's literally a whole company that is well-respected in the coaching industry called Precision Nutrition and the people that created it, it's seven registered dietitians. They created it to give you certification so that you could do basic things. And it, it lays out scope, right? It literally says something along the lines of what you just said about, <laughs> this is not for you to treat yeah. medical diseases. That's out of what y'all do. Mm-hmm. But like, if you want to give a recommendation on protein intake for somebody, generally speaking, like what's the big deal? I mean, yeah. Like, I don't care who tells me, like I, I get you know, good advice from her, like, oh, this is high in protein. I'm like, oh, thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I just wanted an alternate perspective, uh, whether you agreed with previous statements. And I think that we've, we've talked about it. So, you know, full scope and I'm not, I'm not catching any in the corner here on this, but it was something that threw me off because I, from our interactions, that's not how I thought that the registered dietitian world was. And it very much took me by surprise. And I didn't have an immediate way to respond. Cause I was yeah. just like, Whoa. Well, I mean, I think I can give you a little historical perspective is that as RDs, like we've always struggled to sort of um, make our voices and, and become the experts, because I do think registered dietitians are the experts um, in the field of, of nutrition and, and how people should be eating. Um, so part of that is just like when you have so many competing factors and how do we separate ourselves from from all these others. And, um, so I think that's kind of a part of it is just like getting people to understand that, and, and, and that registered dietitians are, are the experts and, and you can work with registered dietitians, just like, you know, the company that you're talking about has worked with registered dietitians, acknowledging, um, that they're, they're the experts. And I'm just conveying some of the information that, that these that smart they've people co-signed. I mean, they literally created the curriculum. They're all PhDs every single one of them on there is PhDs or MS and they're all RDLDs, every single one of them. They created the curriculum. Like, I'm not sure why that would be outside of scope if they created and said, Hey, you should play in these, these lanes because everything outside outside of here is too much, but this will get most people to go. Yeah. And it might just, you know, how, how you use that information. So like we said before, if you're, if you're saying, if your, your coach is whatever is saying that we're going to use this information to treat your diabetes, that's outside. Of the yeah. And maybe you shouldn't have a coach that says that. <laughs> yeah. Find somebody else, please go see a registered Sorry. dietitian. Um, uh, yeah. But if you're speaking, you know, that these are generally general recommendations that, that we think are, will make, you know, for overall health. Mm-hmm. I, I see no problem with it. I also am not in competition with anybody. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you don't have a, an implicit incentive to uh, to disincentivize a coach from doing that because you don't make money off of it. Right. Um, and I'm not saying that this other individual has that 100% that that was the desire, but yeah. you implicitly do not have an incentive to to stop someone else from coaching yeah. nutrition because yeah, I mean, if I hear something that's wrong, then like, I come on, I'll cancel you. But um, yeah, don't do that, Jessica. No, no, no. <laughs> Grace and mercy always stop that. Um, well, cool. Well, I want to respect your time. We went very long. I very much enjoyed this. I hope you were not bored. I hope you had more fun than the other times that you've been on air, uh, talking about nutrition. I had a damn time. I think everyone listening to this will hopefully enjoy it. Um, I had a blast. It was fun talking to you. 
yeah, I appreciate you getting out of your comfort zone and being willing to do this. Although you're like, I'm boring on here. I, I don't yeah. think anyone is going to say you're boring. <laughs> I'm a really boring person. I should have had my lab coat and my glasses on. So, no, so none of that. None complete of that. the entire nerd look. None of that. Well, we're going to wrap here um, and then hold on. I appreciate everyone for being here. Uh, it has been a damn time talking about everything nutrition. Uh, I greatly appreciate everyone's most valuable asset. That is your attention. Um, if you've made it to the end of this episode, you are one of probably the very, very few, because this is a long episode. Um, but you can find us on all, all social media platforms. And um, I will link to some of Jess's work and her faculty page where you can literally pull everything if you want to go look at any of it. Um, and Jess, I, again, I greatly appreciate you being here and uh, thank you for being a, uh, a friend, somebody that I can bounce stuff off of someone that's helped me in my coaching journey. And I've literally not even known you a year and uh, I couldn't be more grateful um, to have met you. And this podcast was a hell of a time and we'll have to do it again. I loved sure. it. Can't wait for the next one. For my sure. Pleasure. For sure. Um, all right, guys, if, uh, if you need me or you want to recommend anyone to come on a podcast, please feel free to hit me up in the DMs or, uh, or find us on one of the socials and we can go from there. This will be out on everything. If you're listening to this on Spotify, it's on every other streaming site and it'll be up on YouTube on the video side if you want to see that. Otherwise, hope everyone has a great rest of your day and thank you a ton. Just again, I appreciate you being here and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks. Have a good one.